measuring how many people engage with your new product, it's actually quite meaningless. What I'd be more interested in is how many people actually love this thing and can't live without it. And that can sometimes be drowned in if you just have this flurry of people using it. This is the Business, Innovation and Technology Podcast. And you're listening to the second half of an incredibly insightful panel discussion with guests Bruce, Taryn and Miku, moderated by Jess. If you haven't listened to part one, go back to learn how our guests identify problems worth solving. I'm Jordan Rogers-Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. This episode is titled Innovation and Entrepreneurship, Part 2. How do you translate your entrepreneur ideas to a big company like Facebook? So Facebook's got its goals, it's got its missions and such. How do you drive such a big vehicle in the direction of your ideas? After being part of so many ventures, it's really liberating to be at something like Facebook where in the heart, at the core of it, we are all still entrepreneurs. And I would say that if, if you think about it, if you just focus on the ideas and you look at it from a founder or entrepreneur perspective, to be very honest, a lot of time goes in doing everything else, whether it's fundraising, whether it's talking to investors, whether it's finding partners, customers, and all of that. I would attribute like at least 70% of my time went into that and tougher the idea, more time goes into especially fundraising. So the thing is, when you take a look at it from just from pure innovation perspective, and when you are in a place as thriving as here, actually you have 10x more empowerment to do the same thing in terms of to do the same innovation. But now you already have the scale sorted out, right? Uh, at the scale of Facebook, you already have people sorted out with crazy passion to do something out of the box. And you can empower the teams who are already motivated and driven. So I, I feel there is this misnomer industry-wide that, you know, if you are innovative, if you are entrepreneurial, you have to keep, you have to do your startup. That's the only place where you can see it as a culmination. I, I don't think that's true. I feel in the right place, like what we have here or other organizations where there is this impetus to innovate. I think these are awesome places because you don't have to worry about so many things. And one thing though, which is very important uh, is that you still have to be pragmatic and going back to Bruce's point, you have to be very objective and open to feedback when you are in a bigger structure, because let's face it, we will have to have better alignments, better stakeholder ownerships, better sponsorships. But if we can get through that, then I think there's more room to do innovation here than any other place. This, I think, is the, I don't know, trillion dollar question. <laughs> like society is trying to wrangle with it. So there's a saying, right? The meetings are where good ideas go to die. That's something that I think we've all kind of heard one shape or form. It's, yes, I mean, like we're in a large company like Facebook. We have a lot of resources. We have a huge mission ahead of us, metaverse. There are, and, and of course we have the entrepreneurial spirit for a lot of people like their work here. Creme de la creme in a sense. So we have that drive, you have the resources. I think though that we still, and this as a society, we still have to figure out how is it, how do you structure organizations internally so that you can actually innovate with the speed of small companies, right? How do you do that? 
mechanically. And I think people have experimented with a whole bunch of different ways of doing this and here and this, that, and the other. There's, for example, one model, for example, that uses what's called like special projects, like uh, little cells where they say, you know what, you and you're going to go in this building, it's unmarked. You're going to be working on this thing. Don't tell anyone. No one knows about you and so on and so forth. And this is within the context of big companies. And I think that that is something that can work. That's perhaps a way to do it. I don't know if there's a silver bullet. I think that there's a way to do all these. There are different ways of doing these different things. The advantage of that might be that you don't have like your N squared number of relationships to get buy-in from and then align and everything. But frankly speaking, the point is not to align. Sometimes the point is to do something off the manifold that's just really crazy, and it might actually have some dividends down the line. And, and then, of course, you have the other end where it's like, hey, let's all get together, put our heads together, and try to crack this problem. I don't know what the solution is <laughs> for huge organizations yet. I think, we're, I think we're trying to figure out. But I would like to, say, uh, to see, going back to question number two, what are some things, what are some problems worth working on? I think there's a meta problem. The meta problem is how do you get humongous organizations to innovate efficiently? And I think the book is still yet to be written. It's interesting because this is, a, this is a question I had to deal with when I was considering joining Facebook 10 years ago. And arguably, it was a much smaller company than probably 600 people globally or something like that. Oh, it's interesting. And I know often, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure all of us on this call today have asked ourselves this question as we considered joining a larger organizations. And what's interesting is what I've learned to come to realize, I, I, it's taken me many years to realize that I had realized that it. it gives you the, the meta size of the problem here, is that ultimately what makes a startup is not the size of the building, nor the number of buildings you have or anything like that, but really like the mindset of the people with it. And a lot of, I, probably a lot of people are going to hear this and are going, oh, come on, give us a break. But like in many respects, I feel that Facebook, in many ways it operates, it's still very much a startup today because of the mentality of the people that makes up the workforce and how you know they consider approaching problems to uh, Taryn's point about making U-turns. In fact, I, I guess I feel like all I've been take, doing at Facebook is taking U-turns. And we have all these mantras around people encouraging people to fail fast, move fast. And so I, I think in that environment, combined with what Miku was talking about, the resources we have and so on, the access that we have to clients, developers, a worldwide audience has allowed me, at least as an individual, to better refine my ideas much faster than I would have on my own or in a smaller structure. And last but not least, the scope of impact. It's incredible to look at the scope of influence that Facebook has in the world. Like We connect so many people and so many businesses around the world. And so to validate an idea could take just a few short weeks at Facebook when it may take you years in any other setting. And so from that perspective, combine an entrepreneurial background, a desire to create new things, an innovative environment, and the people that make that up, I, I think I have found it to be an environment that I have thrived in a tremendous amount. And you know, probably the fact that I've been around for 10 years probably speaks louder than boards on, on that perspective. And I feel that many people feel uh, the, the same on, on that perspective. And to add to that, because uh, still so new at uh, Facebook, my the assessment scale is, have I changed the way I do things here compared to how I was doing when I was doing my own startup? So far, the answer has been absolutely no. <laughs> and that that's a big statement. That's a big statement for me because we all have these kind of assumptions that you'll have to adapt, do things differently. Of course, there are certain things which you will do differently, but right at the core of it, I still have this platform to go crazy, to go overboard, 
to do things the way I was. And I think that's really liberating because I know that other things I don't have to worry about. So as long as that scorecard is high for me, I know that I'm absolutely in the right place. And hopefully that resonates with a lot of people here. Oh my God. I'm just like plus wanting like everything over here. I also recently joined Facebook with after a series of startups and whatnot. And what I loved about startups was like the craziness and the speed of like innovation and validation and whatnot. But it's true. Like it, to Bruce's quote over here, what makes a startup is not the size of a building. It's a mindset of the people. Very much at Facebook, I've found that we've been able to innovate at the speed of like small companies with the resources and the reach and the influence that we have. Shifting gears a little bit, what type of metrics do you put into place when taking a product from zero to one, one to a hundred and ultimately gauge success? <laughs> No, I feel like this is one that Tarian has a lot of, but I'd love to hear from him. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, metrics again. Yeah, no, I think just like I was saying last time that metrics are important, but the proper metrics are even more important. And I think that requires like its own research unto itself. Like, I'll give you, I'll give you folks an example from like the autonomous space where one metric was how many autonomous miles do does your robot drive basically. And very quickly you find that it's very easy to cheat that because you can just go on a straight road somewhere and you can drive for a hundred miles in a straight road somewhere, right? In middle of Arizona. And you've just accumulated a, a bazillion miles autonomously, but that's not really what you're trying to measure. You're trying to throw a lot of this complexity at it. I think that to be honest, the one metric at the end of the day for businesses, big companies, startups, whatever, it can be, it's what's the currency you're after. If it's making money, then the metric is, did we make money? If it's some sort of social impact, did we have this social impact? So reducing, for example, carbon uh, you know, dioxide emissions and whatnot. So there, the, I think that we should always try to keep it close. I think that when you start to look at proxy metrics, they can work, but you should be very careful because it's very easy to cheat the system if the proxy metrics are not chosen very wisely. I give an example about autonomous miles. There are other examples in the field of teachers, for example, being asked to graduate this many students a year. You have to do this, right? And the thinking there is make sure that they get educated properly so they can pass, where the easy way out is to lower the bar for what it means to pass. And that's actually what ends up happening. So it's about all these incentives that you have to be very careful about. So metrics, I, I think it depends on the problem. I would keep it close to the metal. I would be very suspect of proxy metrics. I'll just say that. And if someone offers that to me, I would I, I will try to imagine ways in which this can be uh, cheated, and not in a malicious way. When I say cheated, it's, it's just the it's just the way it's just the way that a complex dynamical system will end up evolving, given those incentives. So that's my kind of high level take on it. Somewhat uh, reminds me of that safety score a certain manufacturer has put out that I know Jess and I are competing <laughs> on. Uh, <laughs> I don't feel I don't know if I'm optimizing for the score. Or for what it enables, or, or safety driving. I, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, good example. I am so conflicted on that. I am definitely optimizing for the score. Wrong behaviors. I, I do think that metrics is also something which ideally should evolve or change, map to you know how you are progressing on whatever it is, the project that you're trying to do. Like you have to have very different metrics when you're in the zero to one phase of something, right? Because you, you you can't the only metric you can put is probably every week this is have a have a kill day to say do you do you want to kill this idea or do you want to go forward that was the metric till the time you feel that okay i have all the data points to actually move forward and get to the next phase and then when you get to the next phase 
the metric has to change. Of course, the North Star can, that doesn't change because that was the impetus of the entire idea. If you started something saying you want to, which I did, you want to reduce food waste globally, the North Star won't change. But on day zero, I'm not going to have metrics to say, how much did I reduce food waste you know, and, and attribute it to reducing the world hunger? On day one, I, I'm still not there. But eventually, I do need to get to having all these metrics in place where they start aligning to the North Star. So finally, I did get to a point where, okay, we have inspected these many millions of fruit and reduced 30% in the rejection. So I have attributed to the North Star. But that took years. That took years to, to, to get to that kind of metric. So I think the, the takeaway is that we should give ourselves the room to, to change the metric, but not the North Star, which was the reason why you got into it, and then let it evolve as the stage of the solution evolves itself. Yeah, yeah and there's also just like one thing add. Oh, so, sorry, Bruce. Yeah, just one thing to add to Miko's point is that, yeah, and a good example of that, by the way, folks, is this metric, for example, of say customer engagements. We often see that so many times. Bruce, I'm sure you've seen them. All these startups, this is how many customers we've engaged, right? Especially for something, say, new and novel, there's that school of thought, right? Don't make something that a lot of people like. Make something that very few are going to love. Like they just will kill for this thing. And so there, measuring how many people engage with your new product, it's actually quite meaningless. What I'd be more interested in is how many people actually love this thing and can't live without it. And that can sometimes be drowned and if you just have this flurry of people using it. And so that's where I think it becomes quite important. It takes effort, basically, when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I obviously put Tyron on the spot here because we had a conversation about this last time. And it's funny because building on this, I, there's two things to this, really, when I think about metrics and goal at any given stage. First mistake I see people doing it is picking metrics and goals they have no control over. And this happens more often than you would imagine. You want to influence and you want to reach so many businesses, so many people in the world and so on. Sure. To Miku's point, can you do that day one? How are you going to do that? And so the way I have grown to think of metrics and goals is, it, you know, Matryoshka dolls, the Russian dolls, there's like the metric, the master metric that you're going to care the most about. And that may just be a thing like in six, 12, you know, 18 months time when you're reaching cruising altitude and so on. But as you peel it off, what are all the other layers and getting to the core? So to Taryn's point, I think, you know, I'm actually a supporter of proxy metrics, but to Taryn's point, I think you, know, you have to be cautious of not compromising on, on what is going to be that, the goal of the, and the purpose of that proxy doll. But in, in the context of a matriarchal doll, like they all ladder up to that ultimate metric. And there is continuity of metrics and goals that you optimize towards in, in that construct. And so I, I really like that. And I think. Ultimately, the difference between the stages that you're at in building out your ideas is really just breaking down what you're trying to validate at each stage. So trying to metric and goal against something you would try to prove in, in three years time is most likely 99.9% .9 going to lead you to failure if that's the way you were to assess your success at that moment in time. And I think to Tan's point, this is hard work. And this is often work that people unfortunately do at the end, but they start building and then it's like, okay, so how am I going to measure if I'm doing well or not? And to me, I think that's probably the worst approach because, you know, there's no way that's not going to feel as a tax compared to the work that is exciting about building and ideating and so on. And so the strongest encouragement I give to my teams and the companies that I work with and so on, I like, let's be super crisp about what we're trying to validate and prove before 
we even ever start, you know, writing the first line of code. And I've seen this make a tremendous difference for that could be the most talented people ever, but brought together to form this beautiful chaos because they haven't agreed on what success looks like, basically. Yeah. Uh, and just one last thing to add. No oh, go ahead. No, I wanted to reiterate from our last session, which you had said so passionately, <laughs> which was that you don't want to be optimizing for the wrong metric. <laughs> you know, so I want, yeah. I wanted to leave it at that because mm. if there's one I've thing away, billions of dollars <laughs> wasted on that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I still remember that the way you said it, and it stuck with me. Don't optimize for the wrong metric. So that should be the takeaway here. Yeah, yeah, and there's also one. One last thing, folks. This is a great question, by the way, Jess. The other thing that I would say, folks, is that metrics are one thing. Trade-offs go a long way here as well. So, meaning, people can we can sometimes become it's possible that it's possible to become like myopic about a metric, even if it's correct. This is the metric we're going to go optimize. Boom, boom, boom. But oftentimes, when you look at systems, when you look at businesses, whatnot, in engineering, we have this saying: there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Right. So you can, we also have to be humble and say, here's a metric and we think it makes sense, but this is the trade-off that you get with it. On the other hand, there's another solution and this has actually a worse metric than the one that makes sense, but here's what we gain on this other dimension. And that plan B might actually be better as possible. And so we almost have to widen the pie in a sense and say, you know what, even when we do come up with metrics that might make sense, at what cost? What's the trade-off? What if I did a little bit less, but I gained so much more on this front or that front? So I think that's also why I like to keep the, the metric conversation a little bit like firm, but also with some slack, because sometimes you can lower your metrics that do make sense and gain a lot in some other dimensions. And that's also worth considering. Wow. This was a heated question. A lot of passion coming out of this one. So we heard back from working back from your North Star, being able to really set and determine the proper metrics based on what you actually care about, being really crisp on what you want to validate, and then being ready to adjust on the metrics that you may have going through the different stages um, of the product. And then don't forget, you got to zoom out a little bit. You got to widen the pie and be humble on the trade-offs and such. So before we close this podcast, I do have one more question for you guys. What advice or recommendation would you give on fostering a culture of... It's funny because it's one of those that I think about constantly and which I have not found the perfect answer to. So if you go and have one, like, please like, help me out. I don't think innovation is ever going to be an end state. So it's just like an ever-changing picture. But when you start looking at what's the kind of picture that you want to paint, I'm only mentioning pictures because Miku and I were talking about Van Gogh the other day and I went, what kind of picture? And you can work backwards because again, like culture of innovation is just the sum of many individual cultures in, in many respects, maybe the, the sum of individualities. And so I think to me, it's, I think what has worked. So well, so far, I will say is diversity of thought, just like cognitive diversity. And um, I embrace the fact that there's going to be people from different backgrounds uh, with different point of views and so on. Like ultimately, it's going to lead to a melting pot of ideas, at times conflicting ideas, different point of views and so on. And ultimately, that is what this, the steering pot is the innovative process. And that's how far I've come on the question, but I'm curious to hear if Miku and Terin have other ways to approach that one. We have it all sorted out, Bruce. You <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, to, to your point, right, innovation is a very overloaded word, but 
there is really no framework to that. You can't fit it in a framework. Like I said, you can have certain things where you have that mindset. You can use certain tools to improve your success, but putting it in a framework is my daughter got this painting with going back to painting where you have a Van Gogh, but all the boxes are there with numbers and you can fill in the color. You're not going to make a Van Gogh that way. So, so, you know, that's the difference between thinking something and really innovating. The, the other aspect, which I always see, because I don't, I'm not an angel investor, but I do mentor a lot of <laughs> entrepreneurs. One thing is that innovation can happen in any aspect of a business problem, right? It's not always about technology. Like when you look at outside of tech industry, I always like to quote this Southwest Airlines example. That wasn't a tech innovation. It was a process innovation saying that how do I, going back to Bruce's earlier point that you take the learnings from one industry, put it to another industry. Southwest Airlines is competing with cabs. It's not competing with other airline industry. If you think about it, what they wanted to do was just give you a faster transport and competition was the cabs at that point, not, you know, not pre-Uber. So the, the idea is that innovation could be in the technology, it could be in the product, it could be in the process, it could be in your marketing, it could be in your communication. All of that is innovation. So we should have that mindset. And then the last thing is that you can think big, think really big, have that North Star there, but you got to start small, right? Like on day zero, if you're going to build the AV, to your point, that's not going to work. Day zero is going to drive it straight in the middle of the road. I don't know if we are able to do even that. I have no idea. That's where we got to start. We got to start small, break it down, iterate, and then eventually we will get there. But this obsessiveness about innovation means that it's a really big, that starts overwhelming at least younger entrepreneurs. And then you're in a situation where you don't take that first step. And yet I feel like boarding a border plane or deboarding is the most inefficient, in, least innovative thing ever. I wish someone would disrupt that thing. I keep on reading and hoping one day there will be one more efficient way to go about it. We have electric planes coming up. There are promises being made in the industry. <laughs> yeah, one day, one day. Yeah, folks, no, I think this is how do you make a culture to foster innovation? This is actually just one thing that, yeah, just like Nick and Bruce are talking about. One thing that I think about a lot, one of my dreams in the far, far future, maybe, is to make like a like some sort of organization that's like a linear combination between like venture studio, a research lab, startup, some sort of weird vehicle like that. I'm not really sure what it would take, but this is one of the things that I actually think about of how do you make a culture that where you have innovation. I think there's some elements we can talk about, like this concept that you should have a U-turn. Bruce mentioned the diversity of thought, which I'd like to add to because that is very important. Even within technology, we can have dogmas. It's human nature to have paradigmatic dogmas about how to do something. I would like to get people, for example, that have paradigmatically different ways of thinking about a different problem, which literally means they're not going to agree with each other. And that's fine. But I want them under one umbrella because that's how you got a lot of the cross-fertilization of things like that. I think that organizationally, this goes for any organization, by the way, is this notion that when you figure out that something doesn't work, that is actually information and that should be treated as such. And I like to give this example to folks. They say, well, you have a boat lost at sea and they don't know where it is. And you have your search and rescue go out. What do they do? They grid up the entire ocean into these little squares. And they say, okay, you're gonna go search these squares, you're gonna search these squares. And then we paralyze the search process, right? 
Now, if one helicopter came back to you and said, you know what, we searched this grid, this square, we didn't find anything. Is that useless information? It's actually very useful because now it's not there. I don't have to look there anymore. And that I think is something that as research organizations in general, really needs to be under, it really needs to be understood. It said, you know what, we tried this thing. It didn't work out because of these reasons. That's informative. That's negative information. And if you talk to lawyers, they call these trade secrets. What not to do is sometimes a lot more valuable than what to do. So I think that from a cultural standpoint for any organization on earth, I think that if you really want to foster a culture of innovation, there's so many ingredients. One, one big one, I think, is to really imbue them with this notion that you are searching the ocean. And if you search this grid cell, don't find anything, that's fine because now I know where not to look. And that's valuable. Man, that's wow. meta. Searching the ocean. The <laughs> binary search. Our book, which we are going to write together, Terrence. Yeah, that, that, there you go. The yeah. Searching the ocean for a square. Searching the ocean, though. And with that, look out for the book. Thank you all so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this extended two-part episode discussing innovation and entrepreneurship. I'd like to thank Bruce, Tarin, and Miku for sharing their insight and experience with us. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Jess for doing a great job moderating. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review.